I remember the text message very well. It said that he would see me in my dreams. And, um, you know, it, it was that vagueness that, that really alarmed me. And, and it was very cryptic. And it was cryptic enough that I called my dad. Um, so my dad's there in New Orleans. And he is now having to tell me that this has happened. And um, obviously it was a very unexpected turn of events. Are people born good? Uh, that is a, a tough question to ask or answer. Uh, personally, I believe that people are born with good intent, with good thoughts, with good hopes. Uh, but the difference between a hope and actually putting that into action, it is a chasm. And that is the interesting thing about what a promise is and its purpose. It literally is the bridge between that intent and, and that action. And when we can close that gap, not only do things get done, but we can reduce human suffering. We can make the world a better place or ever, whatever hokey way you want to say it, it can be done. And that's going to be the center of today's episode. Hi, this is Alex Sheen, founder of Because I Said I Would, and you are listening to the Because I Said I Would podcast, where we share the life stories that come from promises that people make, uh, the ones they keep, and even the broken ones. In today's episode, you're going to hear from Sabrina. Uh, she has a bright spirit, a contagious laughter, and Sabrina has had to overcome challenges that have a, uh, I guess, an interesting sequence of events a non-intuitive order. Uh, sometimes in life, things, I don't know, they just, they domino in a way that just, uh, you don't see coming. This is her promise story. So I, I've been in New Orleans on and off um, since the fifth grade. My parents, retired there. My mom fell in love with Mardi Gras and decided that she just never wanted to leave. And actually, that's how a lot of people ended up in New Orleans is they, they came for a visit and realized, wow, this is such a unique individual situation that you, you were not going to find anywhere else in the world. Though Sabrina's home base was in New Orleans, she moved around a lot due to being in a military family. In eighth grade, I came to Florida because it was when the Gulf War was happening. Both my parents on 24-hour call. My dad was a Marine. My mom was in the Navy. So I had to come live with my aunt temporarily um, because we didn't know if they had to be deployed. They had to be deployed within 24 hours. And her dad wasn't just any Marine. So he was a chief warrant officer, which was the highest rank he could make as a commissioned officer. So if I tell anybody with military experience, oh yeah, my dad was a chief warrant officer. They're like, wow. And for someone who's so, not familiar, what what is a chief warrant officer? So he, he they, they're gunners, <laughs> um, and and so he was actually over uh, personnel, and and so he did a lot of um, just maintaining the troops, if you will. You know, um, so people had to listen to him. Sabrina's dad was a huge influence on her life, and their family unit was strong. I always knew he had my back and that if I needed anything, um, he, he, he would he would be there to help fix it. I, um, I'm definitely an independent person because of my father, because he taught me not to 
listen to other people just to listen. I, I definitely take all in order and follow the chain of command. I think growing up on a military base, you can't escape that. Um, but I'm comfortable challenging because of what my father taught me and how he taught me to be and who he taught me to be. Just like he had my back, I had his back and that's kind of what you have to do when you're growing up in a family. And because we moved around so much, I went to 15 different schools uh, before I graduated high school. And so it was always just the four of us. It was me, my mom, my dad, my brother. And and as a kid, that's your support. That's your unit, right, wrong, or indifferent, functional or dysfunctional. You know, that's what you grow to trust and understand. 1.1 million school-age kids have parents in active duty. The challenges that come with that are all across the country. In fact, the Department of Defense even runs its own schools. But Sabrina was was able to successfully integrate into a different environment, an all-girls Catholic school, and she graduated in New Orleans, and a bright future was ahead of her. And then I finished high school in New Orleans. I graduated from an all-girls Catholic school. Um, Most people did not attend the public school system there because um, it was very poor, um, literally poor, and the finances were poor, but the um, education system itself was just not very good quality. And so all of my friends went to Catholic school. Sabrina eventually got married, had a child, a son, Her husband, a police officer, had two daughters from a previous marriage, and they all began their lives together in this cozy New Orleans suburb. Sabrina took a job as a front desk manager at a bustling upscale hotel on Bourbon Street. She simply could not escape the magnetism of the French Quarter. Our occupancy was like 92% for the year. So it was very, very, very busy all the time. Um, we had Mardi Gras that made it interesting for two weeks out of the year. Um, because of just the nature of Bourbon Street itself, people are a bit uninhibited on Bourbon Street. And so it, it makes for interesting life tales. And something about um, just being there it made them feel like, you know, they could access it and do whatever they wanted, I guess. Her job was exciting, a new adventure every day, and even came with some perks. I met LL Cool J, <laughs> and NSYNC liked to stay at the hotel, so it, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Life was good. Sabrina had a promising career, a loving family with her husband, six-year-old son, two stepdaughters that were nine and ten years old, and even two cats whose names were Sunshine and Partly Cloudy. Amazing. Everything was under control. The horizon was bright. But what loomed beyond that horizon was something that Sabrina could have never anticipated. Her life, along with millions of people, millions of New Orleans residents, those lives were about to change forever. The date was August 23rd, 2005. When the storm hit, I had just enrolled in grad school, and so I was going to grad school um, one week in a month. It, it was an executive MBA program, and so that weekend that Katrina hit, I was actually at UNO, the University of New Orleans, because I graduated undergrad there, and I was on campus 
that Saturday before Katrina and over the PA system, they're like, we're shutting down campus because of the impending weather. All classes will be canceled until... And all of us are like, what? What weather? You know, it wasn't even on anybody's radar. Residents there did not have a grip on what was about to happen. And therefore, there was not much urgency. Urgency is something that we often have, uh, but only when it's too late. The problem was, is the year before, we had the same kind of feeling about Ivan, and we evacuated uh, the hotel then, and I was at the hotel for that, and it didn't even rain. And so when those situations happened in the city, it really desensitized people to the urgency surrounding what was going on. And so for Katrina, because it kind of snuck up on us, um, nobody was really taking it very seriously. Fortunately for me, my dad was, and he kept calling me and, and, and he's like, you've got to leave. And I was like, dad, I'm not leaving. I got to be at work on Tuesday. You know, I'm, I'm relieving the people that are going to be there around the clock until then. I'm not leaving. It, 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 it's not going to happen. And um, as the evening progressed and the emotional state of, of the people on the news progressed, by about midnight or one o'clock in the morning, the city uh, mayor, uh, Ray Nagan, had declared that he was evacuating the city. And it was at that point that I realized, well, this might be more serious than I, I was thinking. And so for precautionary reasons, we'll just, we'll go and, and we'll stay somewhere for a couple of days, but we'll be back. And, and so we put my son in the car while he was asleep and we evacuated. It, it was so not a, an issue to us that we left our cats there. Mm. We, we didn't think it was going to be a big deal. So we just decided to leave. At, at that point in the middle of the night, we just decided to leave. We were like, we'll just drive until we get a hotel room. We had to go as far north as Birmingham, Alabama, before we could get a hotel room. Sabrina stopped at six hotels. All of them were fully booked. It took a seven-hour drive north to finally land in Birmingham, Alabama, to find a place to stay. She realized that the entire city was emptying, and this was more serious than they thought. So the family hunkered down, glued to the television screen, watching as news reporters predicted that the greatest storm in the United States history was about to hit their home, leaving a weary mother to comfort her six-year-old son. The winds have really picked up here significantly over the last half hour or so. The worst of the storm has now reached New Orleans. This is the moment we've been talking about, dreading. And I'm wondering how long these levees are going to hold on Lake Pontchartrain. We didn't realize how much we should have filtered the news coverage for him. Um, it, as everything progressed, in hindsight, you know, I never should have let him watch the news at all. Um, but we were watching. He was there. We're in a hotel room. It's on a lot of space. But, yeah, he kept asking about them when we were in the hotel room. Are they okay? Because he could see that the, the police were still there. We're like, they got the cats. And so he thought that, like, our cats were, like, in jail with, <laughs> you know, that's, like, in his six-year-old mind. That's how he rationalized it. And so my dad and I are like, we better find these cats. <laughs> we told him they're fine. <laughs> like Sabrina mentioned before, she had left Partly Cloudy and Sunshine, her two cats, behind because they didn't think the storm was going to be of any real concern. 
Now regret started to sink in with this decision. As Hurricane Katrina, a Category 5 hurricane with 175 mile an hour winds slammed into Louisiana, destroying everything in its path, Sabrina and her family braced for that impact. They weren't alone. Everyone in the hotel was from the area, and together they collectively clutched the uncertainty of what would become not only the country's costliest natural disaster, but also a state disaster of epic proportions in a different way. In a different way because it was one that could have been prevented. So we're, we're north in Birmingham, getting ready to check out of the hotel when the levees broke. We're, we're literally um, watching it on TV. And the interesting part, and I, I think I really started feeling connected to community by going through this experience because everybody in the hotel was from the area. And so the whole time, I mean, we always had big, I'm talking to strangers in ways that I never would have before, right? And so we're, we're in this lobby and you can hear the gasp from everybody when they start reporting that the levees is broke. Cause we all knew what that meant. Like we're not going home. For Sabrina and the residents of New Orleans, hearing that the levees broke was the worst thing you could possibly hear. Yes, they grew up with the knowledge that if this would ever happen, it would become a catastrophe. It would devastate the area from no return. But now, what just sounded like a nightmare, a warning, something parents say, was actually happening. In high school, um, we knew the levees would not hold if they were um, impacted because of the storm. Um, the Army Corps of Engineers kind of set up, they were the lock system. It was pretty common knowledge that, that um, they hadn't been maintained and the system was faulty. Um, and in fact, about every 40 years, the city itself flooded because of storms. Now, you, you got to remember, the city for Katrina didn't flood because of Katrina. It flooded because the, the levee failed, because it couldn't withstand the weight of the water. Um, and I don't think most people outside of the city realize that. And so for the people of New Orleans, they knew what this meant. Their city would be wiped out. Um, and, and so it, it was very similar to that feel that you got during 9-11 when you watched the planes hit. The, the, the towers, um, where immediately your mind goes to what's next? You know, how can this be? This can't be possible. All of those where you're, you're put in this place where you're vulnerable now because where you thought you were safe, you're no longer safe. And um, so those are the things that are going on immediately. Nine days after the storm, Sabrina and her father decided it was safe to go back. My dad and I, nine days after the storm, went back. Um, it literally looked like mass destruction. It literally looked like a bomb had gone off. I mean, I just don't know how else to explain it. Because there's no light, because there's no electricity. Um, and when we got to the townhome, we were greeted by a man with a machine gun. And, uh, you know, for me, I grew up in a military family, so I've seen machine guns before, but I never expected it to see it in my neighborhood. Um, as my dad's talking him down from 
taking us to jail because we violated curfew. Um, and and, my, and he told us, he's like, you've got to stay. Once you get to the structure, you have to stay there. And and my dad's like, sure, sure we will. We get there. And it had, had five feet of water. So the doors had buckled. They little, literally buckled from the light of the water and, and swollen up. The wood was swollen. And so we're trying to get in to the townhome. And by the time my dad, like, literally breaks the door open to get in, there's just muck on the, on the ground from whatever was in the water that had come in. And you could see the water line um, on that first level of the house. There's mommy guilt for me um, for leaving my cats there, but we just didn't know. I started talking to my dad about it when we got in. I went upstairs to check, and the cats heard my voice, and they started freaking out. <laughs> They're like, get us out of here. <laughs> you know, in meow. <laughs> I'm not going to so, lie. Uh, I needed that to happen. It was a reunion out of a movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, you didn't know. <laughs> I mean, like, you could only yeah. assume that they had died. I mean, like, that's Absolutely. the safest assumption I would imagine. And we had left a bag of cat food out. So they had opened the bag and that's what they had been eating. So I, I was instantly relieved to know that they were safe. And the poor little things had to go on Prozac because they were so traumatized from having lived whatever they lived through for those 90s. The good news for Sabrina, partly cloudy and sunshine, currently my favorite cat names, had made it. But for many, the story doesn't end like that. Over 1,800 people lost their lives. $130 billion in damage. Sometimes when we talk about natural disasters, we just cite numbers to try to put a context, a mathematical wrapping around something where math uh, doesn't describe. The emotions, the pain, and the suffering behind those numbers is something digits can't communicate. I had a couple of friends that were at the, the Superdome during the storm, and the things that they were reporting on the news did not compare to what was literally going on there. Um, they were both military, so they were there for to, to create order and to provide medical support if needed. And... Uh, they would not go back to the super. They were they were season pass holders of Saints games, or season ticket holders, and they would not go back to the Superdome just because of what they experienced and what they lived. Now having to um, put dead bodies because people were literally killing their ch- each other there in freezers. Again, we're in the United States of America. This should not be happening, right? This doesn't happen. I think for all of us that lived it, that's what hurt the most. You know, those things happen everywhere else. They don't happen here. The city, the state, the country had failed the people of New Orleans. There was little direction. There was chaos. Not just in the months after, but years after Katrina. Katrina. 
as a hotel, we kind of assumed that the city would take a lead in managing the um, situation after the storm. In fact, I very vividly remember sitting in hurricane meetings because that was something we, it was a routine part of our our operations is, you know, in, in case of an emergency, what are we going to do? And so we would have actual, we called them hurricane meetings, talking about what the protocols would be. And it was always, we'll take directions from the city. We'll take directions from the city. And that that direction never really fully materialized after Katrina. Um, it was kind of the, the blind leading the blind. For Sabrina, there was no looking back. She was left without a home. No job, no choice. And this was the reality for nearly 800,000 people who were left homeless in the aftermath of this hurricane. You, know, you hear about all the people that stayed, but there are a lot of people that left the city. And I left and literally never went back, but my story's not unique. Um, at the hotel that I worked at, all of the managers that worked there um, had that, that ended up leaving because the hotel was closed, none of the managers came back. So that hotel literally had to face like, restaffing its entire management staff. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, that that's what happened because of Katrina. And people that don't live there don't realize that, um, you know, you go from a population that's about a million in that greater Orleans area. And after the storm, there was 200,000 people when the dust settled. So, I mean, that's a massive change in population. I've never lived through a natural disaster of this scale. I've never lost almost anything, let alone everything I've owned in a blink of an eye. So I asked Sabrina what that actually felt like. Where did this leave her? Time stopped. It literally, still looking back, feels like those months or years anguish and problem solving and and you know trying to just make sense of it all internally and helping a child make sense of it all it, it's different it's a different world when you're in recovery mode and when you're trying to um shift from this again i i, I don't know if a better word can be used but a safe environment and now you're in this unsafe unfamiliar um very scary reality Sabrina drew upon her strength of her childhood. That moving around that she had to do in a military family, the quick transitions that come with it. So she made a move to Florida where her aunt lived in hopes of rebuilding life. So it, it unraveled over time. It was an immediate decision. Um, my aunt lived in Polk County and that's who I'd stayed with in high school. Um, and so because I needed to get my son in school, I was trying to find something that was somewhat familiar. We had three days worth of clothes. I needed to settle in somewhere, get a household set up. So I, I came and I stayed with my aunt for about a month. And I realized, you know what, we could we could make it work in, in Florida. The tourism industry is huge. I can get a job at a hotel. Easy peasy transition. That transition, while it may have been, I don't know, seemed easy at the time, turned out to have consequences maybe even more so than anything she had experienced in Hurricane Katrina, which is hard to say, but in some ways, I believe. As this was all unfolding, I was realizing that my marriage 
was not going to be successful. Um, and his father decided that he could not leave the city of New Orleans, didn't want to live in Tampa. And um, I said, that's fine. You know, I'm, this is where I'm living. This is where it's going to be easiest. This is what makes sense for him and for me. And so um, we decided to separate. Um, and I ultimately filed for divorce. It was always a volatile relationship. I was 19 years old when I met him. And I just wanted to get out of my house. You know, I, I, I wanted to be an independent person. And, and, and so it was an opportunity to do that. And, and I hate to sound, make it sound so cold, but, you know, I was a 19-year-old kid that didn't understand the ramifications, the lifelong ramifications of my actions. And I, I've got a wonderful son out of it. And I would never change anything in the world, but because I had had a child with them and I'm Catholic and they tell you, you have to marry somebody forever, especially if you're having children with them. You, you, you know, I felt like that was my cross to bear was to figure it all out always. And, um, I, I just had resigned myself to that, that, that I was flexible. I was the one that could change. I could bend, I could, because that's what I grew up with. I, I had to be that way as a kid. I was never the kid that had been there forever. I was always the new kid that had to find ways to fit into the group. And that's what I knew how to do, right? I knew how to camouflage and I knew how to um, play along enough that, that it worked. I joke with people now that the ways with Katrina kind of gave me this life that I was always searching for and hoping for and intended to have um, but it, it took it took a because I'm headstrong it took a very uh, globally life altering event to make me realize it so the waves of Katrina lifted Sabrina out of her troubled marriage and into a new life in Tampa but but soon another storm would come so I got a job um that was 40 minutes from home. Um, and so the commute was really hard. Um, I was a single mom, uh, unexpectedly, and it, it, it got to be very difficult. And then in April of 2006, um, I get a call or a text in the middle of the night, um, from his father and it was very cryptic and it was cryptic enough that I called my dad and I said, dad, I need you to go to the house. Um, and I read him the text. He said, no problem. And he goes over there, and uh, my son's father's not there. So he calls me, and we're talking. And I was like, well, we got to figure out where he is. And, of course, my dad's the Marine, so he's commanding, controlling the situation. My dad was an investigator, too. He was, in the mil- he was a military police officer for a time. So, you know, he's trying to pull the, the details that we need to kind of resolve the situation. And while he was talking with um and they had gotten a call from a bank saying that um a white male was um there and there were shots fired and they 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 arrived on scene and um my son's father shot himself when something happens like this oftentimes the people left behind they don't know why but in this case Sabrina knew exactly why her ex-husband went to this specific location to take his own life. Um, that bank where he was was the bank 
that his father had died. Um, so my son's father's father was killed in the line of duty in 1977. It was a story that was pretty well known in the New Orleans area because um, his father had gotten a shot off and, and hit one of the bank robbers. And that's how they ended up solving the case because the bullet was in this person's body. Um, but before everything was said and done, um, my husband at the time, his father was shot and killed um, on the scene. So it was a definite tragic situation. He was six at the time that his father died and something that he very, very, very much remembered and something that probably changed the direction of his life. Um, but that's where he decided he was going to take his own life. Because in the letter that he left, he said that um, that point in his life that, that started having his own demons to deal with. And it was just that point in life where he couldn't get past. Um, I make the plans to head back to New Orleans to try and tie up what, what has happened. Um, and I pick him, I, I pick my son up from school and, and I tell him, I think, so um, we're going to go back to New Orleans. And he's like, did somebody die? And I said, and I, interesting that that's like the first thing that came to his mind. Um, I said, yes, actually, somebody did die. And he's like, who? And I think, well, it was your father. And, and he just sits there and he doesn't cry. He's, you, know, you see the wheels in his head turning and he goes, well, where did it happen? And I said, it happened in his car and he didn't want to talk about it anymore. And, and I was cool with that because, you know, I don't know what I'm going to tell this kid if he's going to continue to ask me questions. And um, so How we was he, go, uh, he was sick. And he was seven. He was seven at the time. He had just had a birthday. And my his father was 33. Sabrina finds herself in unknown territory. Something that none of us should be familiar with. I mean, you try to go and tell your young son that his father has died. So I, I'm having to figure all this out. And one day my son goes, Mommy, can I call Daddy? And I don't know what to say, right? I'm like, Sure, sure, let's call him. Because I hadn't figured out, because his phone line was not in my name, I could not do anything. So I, I'm figuring all these things out as I go along. I, I hadn't figured out how I could get his phone shut off. So my son calls his father, and I go in the other room, because, you know, he wants his privacy. And it's this sweetest message that I have ever heard in my entire life. Hey, Daddy, uh, Mommy says you're not coming home. Um, she says that, that, that I won't see you for a very long time. Mommy's been very sad. You know, all these things. And I'm just, like, heartbroken at this point. The toll was taken, both on Sabrina and her young son. As time went by, her son developed severe depression. He was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Sabrina, too, found it hard to cope with the loss of her livelihood, the loss of her ex-husband, and the consequences they had both on her boy. All of these effects started to fade into her own mind. This past May, 
I had a very severe depressive episode because of uh, my son's bipolar and his journey has been rough and he had a very manic episode. Um, it, there were a lot of things that I just could not quickly, easily resolve, right? You don't listen to your body, your body, body's going to make you listen to yourself. I mean, that's just, at the end of the day, that's just the way it works. And um, so I had a medication change. I, I got back on anxiety medication because of the amount of anxiety I was feeling about the helplessness and, and the inability to be in control. Um, I couldn't command and control everything going on. And um, the medication the, severe, the psychiatrist put me on um, triggered a paranoid event. And I, I experienced a, the scariest break from reality that, um, that, that makes it hard for me to share with people. Um, I heard things in conversations that did not exist. I felt like the radio was talking to me and it wasn't. Um, it, at one point, when I was Baker acted, I thought that I had died and this, that I was in some sort of hell or purgatory or, and it was the scariest thing I've ever experienced in my entire life. I went to my doctor's office and I told them, I said, I don't know what to tell you. And I don't, because I was afraid to tell anybody what was going on. I said, but there's something wrong. I don't understand what's going on. And um, they ended up fake racking me, like full handcuffs fake racking me there. Can you, um, can you say that again? Um, what, was, what was that word? Uh, Baker Act. In the state of Florida, um, there's an act. It's, it's for a, a person named Baker. Um, and when somebody is psychiatrically unstable, you have the ability to have them committed against their will. Um, so I was involuntarily sent to a psychiatric facility. It was awful. It was absolutely awful to live through that. So I, I feel like that that situation has created an empathy in me to understand that we can all stand outside of these situations and judge all we want. But until you walk a mile in that person's shoes, there's there's nothing that, that you could do. And I've walked a mile in those shoes now. Boston tragedy has plagued this family. The weight of life was too heavy. And Sabrina was dealing with more than just her mental instability, but her sons as well. If my son ultimately dies by suicide, you know, and, and he's had two unsuccessful attempts so far. I honestly don't know what the future's going to bring for him because I, I've seen him in, in those depths of despair. And, like, I've lived that with somebody, right? I need to know in my heart of hearts that I didn't pull any punches and that if going through what I did in May, and I'm about to cry, if going through what I did in May and, and saying it, and not being afraid to talk. I feel like I'm a hypocrite if I don't talk about it because I keep telling everybody, you know, you shouldn't be ashamed. And, and yet here I am, I'm ashamed. And I'm scared of what my coworkers are gonna think. I don't want people to not take me as seriously because they think I'm crazy. Sabrina's personal suffering with mental health and loss from suicide 
would become her greatest opportunity to help others. Maybe an opportunity that we all have. As I develop a strength surrounding the situation, I realize that the only way to help other people is to share with them that I know what it's like to be mentally unstable and just to be completely helpless. It was her catalyst for change. It was a spark to shine onto others who might be in that darkness. I believe that there is a silver lining in every situation. Um, the series of events has moved my life into a trajectory that I never could have imagined. Um, I have happiness beyond imagination um, because of everything that has happened. So when people ask me, they're like, well, how do you deal with it? I'm like, how do I not deal with it? I, I mean, I, I don't really, ha I can't get off the ride, right? I, I have to figure out a way that if, if we can find that spot that moment or whatever that is that exists in people that we can write the course of their their situation no matter how bad it is in speaking with sabrina at length i learned that her promise was more than just one thing one she would work with mental health institutions and actually creating a new process for psychiatric patients yeah so i promised that i'm going to do everything in my power to um, fix this system. Yeah. The system is broken. And two, she would hand out promise cards to those she knew needed help and asked that they would do the same for others. I, I picked five people that I felt like would benefit from hearing a promise from me. And so it was five very different things, impactful and immediate to that situation um, and to that person. And then I gave them a blank card. And on the back of my card, I wrote, um, this is a charity that's all about paying it forward. The only thing that I ask is that you take your card at the right time and share it with somebody else. And that's how I chose to, to do a little part of, of you know paying it forward. And she would become a mental health advocate and actively seek others who are suffering. Find them on social media, offer them an ear. I can help people through these situations that they feel like nobody understands. Um, because I've lived it, one, you, you know, and just because I, I have a heart that's compassionate and empathetic and um, my life circumstances has taught me to be resilient. I'm no different than anybody else. You know, there's nothing that makes me special except for the fact that I'm listening to those calls. I can hear them. I actively seek them out. And lastly, she would set out to do something that many people do not have the courage to try. Small things grow into big things. And I'm very comfortable with the fact that I will never see those changes, that butterfly effect of what is happening. And I'm good with that because my dad told me I can change the world and I'm going to change the world. And this is how I choose to do it. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the episode. My name is Aaron Califato, and I help produce content like this podcast or because I said I would. Sabrina's story had so many layers and twists and turns, so I wanted to take a few moments to address a couple of items. Listening to Sabrina's firsthand account of Hurricane Katrina and what it was like to be part of a natural disaster was jarring. You know, I, I just saw a survey conducted by FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and it basically says that 
people who've been exposed to information on how to prepare for a natural disaster were more likely to take steps to protect their home and their family. Now, this seems like all too obvious data, but just think about it in the context of your life. How busy you are, just with everyday things, or maybe you don't live in an area that usually experiences these types of events. The reality is most of us don't make the time to prepare ourselves for these types of situations, but there are a few steps that you can take and get your community involved in the same process. You might think about hosting your neighbors uh, or some of your friends over for a dinner. Just a simple get-together, nothing crazy, not to freak everybody out, but just a conversation to go over scenarios of what you would do in the event of an emergency. What would be your plan? Maybe you can invite someone who's knowledgeable about natural disasters to talk, someone from the American Red Cross or a local fire station. You can talk about creating a contact list for people in your in your neighborhood or on your block and, and identify folks that may have special needs or require more care. If you haven't already done this, and you're able to start these conversations, that's the hardest part. And when you do, more people will be in a better state of mind and prepared in the event of an emergency. In this episode, you heard Sabrina talk about mental illness, how it's dealt with in our healthcare systems and our society. She talks about suicide attempts and the death of her former husband because of this. According to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, it is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. And in 2017, there were an estimated 1.4 million suicide attempts. We know you've heard it before, but we can't stress enough. If you're in trouble or you know someone in trouble, there are people out there for you. And there's a lot of organizations and hotlines available as a resource. But there's a a resource that we're familiar with, and it's called the Crisis Text Hotline. We have an employee at Because I Said I Would, who's a trained counselor for the organization. So I thought it was a good idea to talk with her. And she told me that it's a great resource because sometimes when people are in crisis, it's easier to text than to make that phone call. But regardless, if you are feeling stuck, if you are in trouble, or if you're dealing with a crisis of any sort, pick up your cell phone, open a text message, and type the word hello to 741-741. Again, type the word hello to 741-741 and send the text. That's our episode for today. You can find and listen to this show at becauseisaidiwould.com slash the podcast. You can also listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and most other platforms where they're available. And while you're there, please rate and review. It goes a long way. If you like Because I Said I Would, the podcast, I think you'll enjoy Because I Said I Would, the book. Heartwarming, humorous, inspirational, and tragic, these collections of moving promise stories will challenge readers to look deep within themselves and consider the importance of the promises they make. The book is available for purchase at becauseisaidiwood.com slash the book. And you'll be glad to know that 100% of the author's proceeds go back to Because I Said I Would a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is bettering humanity. And they do this through chapters of volunteers, character education in schools, accountability programs, and awareness campaigns with a global reach. Special thanks to our producer, Julie Fink, our audio engineer, Dave Douglas. Until next time, remember, a single promise can change a life forever. And behind every promise, there's a story.